Uh, what we're going to do right now is we're going to continue our series to the Gospel of Mark. Today we're going to be looking at something a little bit unique, a little bit different. Um, Jesus has been already marked out for us by Mark by, as being a king. Uh, and he's a king that is bringing forth a kingdom because that's what kings do. They bring forth a kingdom. But what's unique about Jesus is he's not like any other king. He's a good king. And therefore, consequently, his good, uh, as a good king, he brings forth a good kingdom. So if Jesus is a just king, that means that his kingdom is also a just kingdom, uh, which means that there will be conflict in Jesus' kingdom with opposing kingdoms or opposing kings. And that's what we see that Mark points out to us is that Jesus does engage in all sorts of fierce opposition. But the preeminent opposition that Jesus faces or is confronted with, is the opposition with the devil, or Satan, as we'll begin to take a look at here today. So basically what we'll be taking a look at is this idea of Jesus versus the devil, or the king, Jesus versus the devil. And so I want for us to at least be aware of this. Now for some of us, the concept they're talking about spiritual warfare, or talking about the devil, talking about Satan, is something that we normally don't oftentimes talk about, we normally don't like to talk about it. And especially in our world in which we love to have some sort of empirical evidence, uh, the concept of things that are spiritual, um, we just think it's silly. We think it's foolish. Or if we do have a concept or an idea in our mind of the devil, typically it's a caricature. In other words, a cartoon character. A little dude in red tights with a tail, pitchfork, and uh, yeah, he looks like your worst enemy, all right, or your spouse. But which might be one of the same. But the point of the matter is that we oftentimes have just simply reduced the devil to a cartoon character. And I think it's important to understand that that's exactly what the devil would love. Because if we can look at him as being nothing more than a cartoon character or some sort of thing that's on your shoulder that you can flick off, then we somehow begin to feel like if he does exist, we're more powerful than it or him. And therefore, we have control over him or it. And so therefore, that's exactly what the devil would love for us to think. But the Bible actually paints for us another picture of what the devil is, what he's like, what he's capable of. There's two extreme errors that oftentimes we as Christians oftentimes will fall into. One of which is we see the devil everywhere. This is the person, maybe this is the church, maybe this is the preacher or the grandma or the family member that sees the devil behind everything. You know, there's no coffee in the freezer. Must be because of the devil, all right? It's not sunny today. It must be because of the devil. Or I fell off my bike and I broke my arm. I need to cast out the devil. Maybe you need a cast, but you don't need to cast out a devil. You fell off your bike. It's not necessarily linked to the devil. There are those that would see devils and evil behind everything. The other error is to see the devil behind nothing, both of which are errors, both of which we need to be careful of, both of which the Bible basically warns us to not fall into one of these two traps or these two places because there is a devil, there is an enemy, Jesus has enemies, he is a king, he has a kingdom, he's advancing his kingdom, and where his kingdom advances and goes forward, there's always going to be these varying degrees or varying levels of opposition that Jesus encounters. We've seen this already taking place in the Gospel of Mark. Most of the enemies and most of the opposition that we've seen in Jesus up until this point have been pretty minimal. It's been sort of leveled to the basis of kind of arguments or people just looking at Jesus or not liking him. Today we begin to see a whole other level or dimension of this. And really the way the Bible is going to define this or describe this is that um, there is evil in this world. 
But behind the evil or underneath the evil is another wickedness or another influence that has great power and great authority to influence all that is wicked, all that is evil, all that is broken, all that is destructive, all that is oppressive in this world. That's the way the Bible is going to describe it. The Bible actually personifies it by giving it a name, calls it the Satan. Actually, in the original, it describes it as the Satan. Later on, during the time of Jesus' life, oftentimes he's identified with personality as Satan. We see hints of that throughout the Old Testament, preeminently in the book of Job, where Job is before God. Uh, Satan comes in before God. I should say Job is on the earth. Uh, Though God is approached by Satan, Satan comes to God and says, I want to curse Job, and the only reason why Job has been a faithful servant of you is because Job is like a mercenary. He does good things for you because you scratch his back all the time. You take good care of Job, you give him good blessing, you make him rich, healthy. All these good things happen to Job, and therefore Job serves you. Satan makes a deal with God, says, how about you let me destroy him, and he'll curse you to your face. And so we see the devil acting by way of being an accuser in this particular sense. And in this sense... In the gospel account, we see Satan uh, confronting Jesus and opposing him. So I want to take a look at this theme or concept of opposition throughout the um, account that we'll be reading here this morning. Beginning about verses 20 to 22, uh, I want to take a look at these opposing opinions that Mark records for us. Again, in the theme of opposition, preeminently the opposition is going to be Satan. But working up to that opposition being demonic or satanic, are just simple forms of opposition, um, first of which we see in verse 20, coming from his own family. It's kind of interesting. The storyline says this in verse 20. And when he went home, the crowd had gathered again so that they could not even eat. So Jesus at this point had become very popular. He kind of had the same level of like a rock star. Everywhere Jesus went, people were always there. They wanted to talk to him. They wanted to touch him. They wanted to see him. If they Facebook back then, they would always be tracking his progress, his every move on some sort of tweet or whatever the case is. They want to make certain that they're close to Jesus, where Jesus is at, watching Jesus, taking pictures of Jesus and posting their videos and their you know, photos up on the Internet because everybody wants to be where Jesus is at. Last week we saw that people actually traveled up to 100 miles, 150 miles away just to come see Jesus. So Jesus is tired, right? He was a human being. He was the God-man. He was perfectly human, perfectly God, although Jesus subjected himself to the physical limitations of a human being. Therefore, Jesus got tired. Jesus got hungry. So Jesus, at the end of a long day, does what most of you guys do at the end of a long day. You just want to eat. You want to go home. You want to sit on your couch. That's what Jesus does. Goes home, wants to eat, wants to sit on his couch. So he goes home. He can't even eat because there are so many people in his house, so many people around the house, That we're actually told later on that verse, it says in verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, and they were saying, he's out of his mind. So can you imagine this? We're actually told throughout the Bible that Jesus in the New Testament had other family members. So this actually means that Mary, Jesus' mom, had other sons and daughters. The Bible is actually pretty clear on this, that Mary did not remain a perpetual virgin, but she did have other children. She was a virgin, prior to Jesus's conception. But after Jesus was born, Mary was probably married to Joseph, as we know, and then would have had other children. But Jesus's brothers and sisters didn't believe in him. They didn't follow Jesus. They didn't love Jesus until after Jesus's resurrection. So here we have Jesus coming home, 
hungry, wanting to sit around, wanting to relax. He can't even do that because there are people everywhere. Comes home to his family. What does his family do? It says they go out and they seize him. Can you imagine this? All right, your younger brother, kid brother, comes out to you, gets you in a headlock, and then motions to the crowd, my brother's nuts. Bye. Like, leave. My brother is psycho. Don't believe a thing he has to say. That's what's going on here. So there's an opinion about Jesus. It's important to know this. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. You all have an opinion about Jesus. There's one thing. I mean, you can admire Jesus, but you cannot not have an opinion about him. You have, everybody has to have some opinion about Jesus, some of which are correct, some are totally incorrect. But in this case, Jesus' own family had an incorrect opinion about him in this particular setting. The second opinion we see, again, in terms of opposing opinions, in verse 22, it says, And then the scribes, it says, who came down from Jerusalem, they were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. He casts out demons. So these guys were introduced to these scribes. Uh, this is a special elite group of religious leaders. These were the people that oftentimes would devote themselves to studying the Mosaic Law and to making certain that the people of Israel were following these things. Uh, these are the people, they were the go-to people. So if you ever had a question about the Bible, you go to the scribes, you ask them their wisdom, their input, their understanding, they would give it to you. Some of them at a price. But the point of the matter is, is these guys actually came down from Jerusalem, which was quite a distance away. So the equivalent would be people coming from, say, Rome all the way to Shandon to hear the little traveling preacher who's making a big ruckus. That's what's going on. That these people come all the way from Jerusalem because they hear about this preacher, this itinerant teacher who's doing crazy things, supposedly in the name of God. And they come, and they basically also, too, have their own opinion. Their opinion, in this case, is that Jesus is actually possessed by the devil himself. In other words, he's in league with Satan. Um, he describes him as Beelzebub, or Lord of the Flies. That's kind of what the actual word literally means. That their opinion of Jesus also in opposition to Jesus himself, is also inaccurate or wrong. So what Jesus is going to do now, he's going to begin to respond to their accusations and respond to the opposition. But what he does is rather than labeling them the same way that they labeled him, Jesus begins to sort of dissect and logically argue with them from the basis of just rational truth. And here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to begin to talk about two opposing kings. So first we saw opposing opinions. Now we're going to take a look at opposing kings. And Jesus then begins to say in verse 23, says, And he called to them, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Uh, good teachers, good rabbis of the day, the way they would oftentimes teach would be they would teach through questions. So if you were to go to him and ask him a question, he would then ask you a question. You'd be like, I asked you a question. I want an answer. And he's like, well, I'll give you an answer after you answer my question. That's the way oftentimes rabbis would do this. And Jesus is a good rabbi, so he asks them a question uh, to the question that they ask him. So his question to them is this. Um, the prince of demons, uh, he says, uh, how can Satan cast out Satan? So Jesus recognizes the fact there are de there's a demonic presence, a demonic power named Satan. And his question to them is, how can Satan cast out Satan, all right, if Satan is an influence, when we talk about kings or kingdoms, really a king is somebody that exerts some level of authority or influence, that's what a king is, 
when the Bible talks about kings, uh, yes, it talks about kings as being proper kings like Nebuchadnezzar or Caesar. But the Bible can also talk about, refer to kings as being people that just have authority, people that exercise authority. The area by which you exercise your authority is called your kingdom or your domain. So in this particular sense, Satan is an authority. He's a king. Jesus is going to describe him as the prince of the power of this earth. Paul will actually describe him as that. But the idea is that this king has great, powerful influence. He's oftentimes identified throughout the Bible in all sorts of different ways. I've written down a handful of them. He's identified as the serpent in the garden, the rebellious day star. We saw Beelzebub, uh, the prince of demons, the devil, the deceiver, father of lies, Lucifer, uh, who's uh, really a fallen angel who's broken rank with God. What I want you to understand, though, is that no matter what your understanding or opinion is about the devil, the Bible is actually going to talk about him. Now, by way of understanding, there's not a ton of information about the devil uh, proportionate to the knowledge of God throughout the Bible. The reason for that is because the Bible actually, first and foremost, is a book about God, not about the devil. However, the devil does play into the storyline of God because he is sort of the antagonizer, all right? Every good story has an antagonist. Satan's that guy, all right? He fits that bill. He is that character. He does have pawns that work with him. He does have people to whom he brings about into his own wicked plan or deception, all right? Um, Think of it this way. It's like the emperor, and uh, he's got Darth Vader, and then you got stormtroopers. So Satan is the emperor. He is powerful. He's strong. There are other uh, layers or levels of demons under him that influence and establish power and authority and oppression of other people, and that's the way that Satan works. So he is a king, and Jesus' logical question is this, is that if Satan's a king, he's got authority, then why would I use my authority if I'm working in league with this king to cast out demons? Now, what he's perhaps referring to is in Mark's account, of the, or I'm sorry, uh, Matthew's account of this story, but also Luke's account of this story, um, this teaching of Jesus actually comes in the context of an exorcism, or Jesus uh, releases a demon out of the life of a person. So perhaps what's being referred to here is that Jesus casts a demon out of a guy. And the religious leaders come to him, and they're like, ah, he casts out demons under the authority of the prince of demons. And so what's, what's interesting about that is Jesus' own, I mean, some of you might have these opinions about Jesus, and you're like, I don't think Jesus had power. I don't think he really did miracles. I think it was just all embellishment. Well, out of the mouth of Jesus' own adversaries, they recognize Jesus does miracles. This is one of the amazing things about the Bible, is that even Jesus, I mean, if if you're writing a book to try to convince a bunch of people about a storyline, you wouldn't have these little statements admitting to the power of Jesus. That's what these guys are doing. Why? Because they knew that Jesus did something. They knew that Jesus cast out a demon. They knew that Jesus healed people. Now, the real issue is not whether or not, well, did Jesus do miracles? The real question lay in, how did Jesus do these miracles? How did Jesus cast out demons? That's where their misperception comes into play, where they're like, I think Jesus cast out demons by the prince of demons, and Jesus is like, that doesn't make any sense. Civil wars aren't good for morale. They're not good for unity. And if I'm working for Satan, right, and I'm casting out demons under Satan, I should get a demotion, not a promotion, all right? Um, that's, that's, I, I should get fired because that's not good. I'm not, I'm actually working 
counter to the impact and the effects of the devil. So Jesus is basically saying, no, really what's going on is we have two kings. There are opposing kings is what I think Jesus is trying to state. The third thing that we see is not only opposing opinions, opposing kings, but we also see in verse 24 opposing kingdoms. Opposing kingdoms. Take a look at what it says. It says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But he's coming to an end. So here's what I think Jesus is trying to say. Is that even though there are several opposing opinions, there are opposing kings, there are also opposing kingdoms. I already kind of touched on this. But a kingdom, when the Bible talks about a kingdom, sometimes when we think of a kingdom, we think of like a palace, like attached to a kingdom, or a kingdom is the palace. A, a, a place or a location can be an extension of the kingdom. But don't think of a kingdom in terms of exclus, exclusively being a location, a place you go to, a spot that you go to. Because that's not the way the Bible describes it. The Bible will describe as places that have been enveloped by God's kingdom. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we can describe heaven as being heaven. It's God's kingdom. But in reality, the reason why it's heaven is because God's kingdom is there. It's made it into that. But the point of the matter is this, is that the way the Bible is going to describe about a kingdom is a sphere of influence. So if you have a king, a ruler, an authority, wherever that king or ruler has his authority expand or expound into, that would be the domain or the kingdom. So what Jesus is trying to say is that there are opposing kingdoms. They're at odds with each other. They're in conflict with one another. They're fighting against each other. So that's what Jesus is saying. That's what's happening here. When Jesus casts out a demon, what you're actually witnessing are two opposing kingdoms in conflict with each other. That's what's taking place. That's what's happening here. And his whole point is that when this takes place, if this was two kingdoms, or one kingdom operating against itself, this would be civil war. This is what Jesus is saying is not what's happening. What you're actually witnessing and what you're actually observing is God's kingdom has come onto the scene, and God's kingdom is in conflict with the alternative kingdom, the devil's kingdom. Perhaps the best way to look at it is kind of in this little graph that I kind of put together here is this. God's kingdom brings freedom. Satan's kingdom brings oppression. God's kingdom brings peace. Satan's kingdom brings anxiety. God's kingdom, joy. Satan's despair. God's kingdom brings love. Satan's kingdom brings fear. God's kingdom brings forgiveness. Satan's kingdom brings bitterness. God's kingdom brings acceptance. Satan's kingdom brings rejection. God's kingdom brings healing. Satan's kingdom brings sickness. Hopefully that's a better way for you to think about this because this is what is at stake here. For some of you, you lived your whole life in oppression. The reason why you've lived your life under oppression, whether it be maybe some spiritual oppression, maybe even it's been religious oppression. Maybe you've been brought up in a church where you've had nothing but religious oppression pushed down upon you, force you into a mold that you feel like you're not capable or you're not able to live according to. Maybe it's some form of oppression of sickness. Any type of oppression is demonic oppression. That's what the Bible is going to say. Sometimes those demonic oppression, the demonic oppression can use earthly means to exert that, i.e. in the form of an, an oppressive leader or a despot or a king like Saddam Hussein or some other leader like a Hitler 
or throughout history, like a Nebuchadnezzar or a Nero or a Pharaoh. But behind all of that, the Bible is going to say, are these demonic forces and powers that are oppressive. Give you another example. If you've been somebody that has been prone to fear, fear arrests you, it grips you, it paralyzes you. You have to understand that is not God's kingdom. God's kingdom is actually in opposition to fear. God's kingdom pushes out fear. It forces fear out. If you found yourself in a place of fear, paralyzing fear, I've been there before. Maybe some of you have been, have been in that place before as well, where fears overcome you and you are completely powerless underneath those fears. That's not God's kingdom. That's Satan's kingdom. Now, it might be Satan's kingdom advancing through your mind, through the thoughts that you think. There have been moments in my life where I've been totally overcome by fear, not because of something outside or something tangibly or something physically that I hear, but by thoughts. There's a time, won't go into detail, I was with my wife, and a fear, a thought came into my mind, and it so gripped, I literally fainted. I was totally, totally overtaken by fear. It completely caused me just to collapse on the ground. Nobody forced me on the ground. No one came in the room and kicked out my feet underneath me. It was a fear that was planted in my head that completely took away confidence and trust in God, and I just collapsed under the fear. This is Satan's kingdom. This is the way Satan's kingdom advances. Give you another example. If you're somebody that, rather than prone to forgiveness, you're a forgiving person, you are prone to harbor bitterness in your heart. You're a grudge keeper. You are someone that tabulates other people's wrongs. You keep track of them, right? You're the type of person that the moment someone's like, what did they do to you again? You're like, oh, let me whip out my list. You're like, and the thing rolls across the floor, and you're like, okay, where should I begin, right? That, you are bound, You're a slave to that. That's not God's kingdom. What I'm trying to say is that bitterness actually oppresses you and destroys you and crushes you. That's all part of Satan's kingdom. Jesus has come, the way the Bible is going to describe, to take back those things. How does he replace bitterness or get rid of this bitterness? By offering forgiveness. How does Jesus push back fears? By overcompensating with love. That's why 1 John says, perfect love, what? Casts out fear. This is the way God's kingdom advances. So we see that there are these opposing kings, these opposing kingdoms, and these opposing opinions. The fourth thing that we see really is opposing strong men. Verse 27, Jesus talks about this. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may then plunder his house. So the picture that I think that Jesus is trying to mark out here and point out here is that the devil is strong. You need to know this. Because some of you might and have been brought up in certain backgrounds where you've been trained and taught. You just got to talk to the devil. You have power. But what you need to understand is that any power, any authority you have is not in you. If you become arrogant or prideful about that, you're actually playing into the devil's very bag of tricks. Satan is prideful. He is proud. You become proud, you're playing into his tricks. You're not casting out the devil. You're not doing anything for the devil. You're actually playing into his own tricks. But what you need to understand is that the devil is strong. He's stronger than you. He's wiser than you. He's more powerful than you. 
He's exercised authority over many of us. In fact, the real issue is perhaps in the form of a question, where is the devil at work in your life today? It's not whether or not is he. It is a matter of where is he at work in your life? What is he doing? How is he exerting, exerting influence in your heart, in your mind, in your thoughts? This is what the devil does. But what Mark wants us to understand about Jesus is that when Jesus shows up in the story that Jesus gives, the parable that Jesus tells, is that yes, the devil is a strong man, but one who's stronger than him has arrived. There's one who's stronger than the strong man. So imagine this. Let's say, for example, you live down in East L.A. You know it's not a safe neighborhood, but everybody, all your neighbors tell you the most important thing that you can do for you and your family is to lock all your doors, get a couple dogs that are very vicious, buy a couple guns, do whatever you can to protect yourself because this is not a safe neighborhood. And what happens if one day you foolishly resist the advice, the wisdom given to you by other people, and you leave your windows open at night, you leave your doors open, you let your garage door wide open, and you leave the door into your house unlocked. And you wake up in the morning, and there's a gangbanger on your front, in your sofa, on your sofa in the front of the house. You wake up, you're freaking out, you're like, what are you doing here? And he's like, don't ask me questions, how about you make me breakfast? You're like, I don't want to make you breakfast. He's like, I'll kill you, you make me breakfast. And he threatens you with a gun, whatever. He's oppressing you. You're doing what he asks you to do. Now, what happens if you are able to muscle up enough strength to get him out, and you're able to get him out, but now you foolishly refuse to lock the doors, to shut the windows, to re-protect your house? This is what Jesus said. He says, some people find themselves free from the attacks of the devil only to find seven more demons come back later, and the attack is even stronger than before. Because rather than turning to Jesus, who is the true strong man, stronger than the other strong man, you've tried by self-help, your own will, your own desire, your own efforts to somehow overcome the attacks of the devil. That's the way some of your lives are. Some of your lives can be defined like that. You've gone through difficult seasons in your heart, in your life, where you've hit rock bottom. And you made a few modifications. You've changed things around a little bit. You said, I'm going to start going back to church. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to go to prayer meetings. I'm going to do all sorts of good things now. In some way, maybe you've just added a little morality to your life, a little spirituality to your life, but you've never truly thrown yourself the mercy of Jesus, calling upon him to be your savior, to wash you, to cleanse you, to enable you, to strengthen you, to empower you. You've just simply Jury rigged your life a little bit so that now you're in control. And you've actually discovered some level of freedom for a short time. And then the next time, your life is actually under even greater distress, greater duress, because the devil came back with, with a stronger army. Gangbanger left. Homeboy went out and got seven of his brothers and came back powered his way back into your house because he knew that you had the gall to stand against him. Now he is going to stand against you with more weapons, more attack, more intimidation, more terror than ever before. So Jesus says the devil's like, he's a strong man. He's stronger than you. 
what we know about the devil, what we seem to know about the devil, is that the devil never dies. There will come a day when he will be cast into the lake of fire. But until then, the devil is a created being. He's created by God. Don't think of the devil as being equal with Jesus. Don't think of Satan as being Jesus' sort of, you know, counter-ego ego or whatever, or his chief opposition in terms of equals. They're not equal. Satan was created as an angel by Jesus. And what had happened was he turned against God rather than worshiping God. He said, I wanted to be worshipped like God. And what had happened was he became wicked, became evil, and then began to influence all of God's good creation, which he loves. And what had happened as a result of that, he is strong, but he never dies as far as we know. He just keeps living his cycle of life. It just keeps going. We die. We live a handful of years, but then we die. So the accumulation of knowledge and information that we have, unless we track it down in the book, doesn't get carried on to the next generation. The devil, Satan and his devils, they don't die, as it would seem, and their information gets passed down. They just keep living out generation after generation. So the demons that are alive today, perhaps, perhaps, are the same demons that lived during the time of the Exodus. So if you want to look at it this way, what we would seem to understand about demons is that demons are very skilled sociologists. They study humanity. They don't know the future. They don't know. They're not omnipotent. They don't have all power. They don't have all knowledge. They're not omniscient, meaning they don't know what's going to be, happen in the future. They don't know the future. But what they do know is they know what happened in the past, and they can look for patterns. So they might look at you, and they might predict that you might end up doing something. So someone might come to you as like a false prophet, and they might say, I think that you're going to be doing this and sure enough, two days later, you end up doing that because the devil is a good sociologist. He's a good observer. He watches our tracks, watches our steps, knows what we're doing, watches where we go because he's seeking for ways to entrap us, to destroy us. He's strong. He's a strong man. What Mark wants us to understand is that a stronger man than the strong man has arrived. And he's taking back the property that the devil's taken. This is the good news. I've talked to people before that are in deep, deep difficulties in their life. And they find themselves trapped. And I've asked them, how far, what do you want to do? You, what, how do you want to be freed from this? And oftentimes, there have been occasions where I've talked with people and they're like, I really don't want to commit my life to Jesus. I don't want to give my heart completely over to him. I just want the terror, terrorizing to stop. I just want to have all of this constant, ongoing conflict to stop. But what you have to understand is the way that it stops is through the power of Jesus. Why? Because Satan is a strong man, but Jesus is even stronger than the strong man. And he loves you. That's the good news. Satan doesn't love. There's no love in him. There's no affection. There's no care, no pity, no desire. Jesus loves He's a good king. He cares. He's stronger than the strong man. So the fifth thing that we see is we see opposing destinies. And this is one of those passages that oftentimes, if you've been kind of following along and reading through, some of you are like, I can't wait to see what he has to say about this. So uh, it's that passage that some of you have maybe read at some point in your life and you've kind of been freaked out. And uh, we'll try to cover it. So it's the passage where it talks about opposing destinies, meaning some will live forever, some will be destroyed. And so here's what Jesus has to say. He says in verse uh, 28, 
Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but he is guilty of an eternal sin, for they, uh, for they had said he has an unclean spirit. So I think Mark clearly points out the reason why Jesus even adds this or says this is because Jesus is, is actually addressing a statement that the religious leader said about Jesus, whereby they actually labeled Jesus. They looked at Jesus in his ministry, and they said, he's got to be doing this by the, name of deep, by, by the name of the devil. He's not doing this in the name of God. This is not God's work. This is the devil's work. So he's actually attributing the works of Jesus to the devil, meaning I think the key, though, is this idea of labeling something. Now, this is one of those verses oftentimes a lot of Christians have been stumped on, tripped up over. Over the years, it's probably one of the number one verses above and beyond any other verse that people kind of get all freaked out on. And I just want to say very quickly, very clearly, uh, if this has been something that you've been struggling with, that you've thought about, and one of the issues is oftentimes people are like, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. I think I've done the thing that God will never forgive. And I usually always ask them, what is it? And there's a series of things. I'll just kind of label a handful of them and say, this is not the unpardonable sin. Masturbation is not the unpardonable sin. Adultery is not the unpardonable sin. All right, fornication is not the unpardonable sin. Those are sins, nonetheless. They are destructive sins, nonetheless. But they are sins that need to be repented of before Jesus and ask him to help you, to cleanse you, to wash you, to give you strength, to overcome those things. But if you committed those things, those are not the unpardonable sin. The the devil loves to cause us to be trapped in certain cycles of sin, whereby you're kind of on this treadmill, you're in this cul-de-sac, you just keep walking around over and over again in the sin, and you're constantly troubled and burdened and frustrated by this thing, and you wish that it would stop. Let me just say real quick, if, if, if you've ever had an ounce of concern of whether or not you've committed the unpardonable sin, I'll just tell you real quickly, you've not committed it. If you care about committing it, you've not committed it. People that commit this unpardonable sin don't care. They don't care. They don't, they don't, they don't want to care. That's where their heart's at. So what is it? All right, the best way to describe what it is, I think uh, I came across a quote. I'm going to read it to you. It's by a guy named N.T. Wright. Uh, he was an Anglican bishop, and uh, I think he had some good things to say on this. I don't always agree with everything that he has to say, but this is actually a great quote, and I want to read it because I think it's spot on. Here's what he says. Once you label what is in fact the work of the Holy Spirit as the work of the devil, there's no way back. It's like holding a conspiracy theory. All the evidence, quote-unquote, that you see will simply confirm your belief. You will be blind to the truth. If you decide firmly that the doctor is, in fact, a sadistic murderer, you will never give your consent to the operation. I love that. Here's what he's saying. The unpardonable sin is this idea that looks at Jesus and says, I'm I'm convinced that Jesus is, in fact, evil and wicked, and I won't have anything to do with him. And everything that Jesus has ever done is to be questioned and to become critical over it's the idea, like he says, of a conspiracy, a conspiracy theorist. Someone that is always looking for something to confirm his own weird, twisted, bizarre fascinations and fantasies. That, again, I love that, that picture, that if you are convinced your good doctor actually is a sadistic murderer, you will never allow yourself to go under his knife, ever. In the same way, if you are convinced that Jesus is not who Jesus claims he is, you will never entrust him with your heart, ever. Let me say this real quick. I don't have any way to prove this, but I, 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 I want to say this. This is my opinion. You can check it. But I, I actually believe that in every human being, 
is at least an embryonic form of this unpardonable sin or what leads to this. Meaning all of us, at some point in our life, we've questioned who God is. All of us, either in action or in thought. And unless you repent from that, unless you turn from that, unless you ask God to give you a new heart, this is why the gospel is so essential. We need God to give us new hearts that see him rightly, that see him clearly. Whereby we don't just simply approach God on the basis of our own opinions, but that we approach God on the basis of his revelation. It's absolutely important. This is not just merely about saying, I'm going to become spiritual. You understand, spirituality apart from Jesus actually is more demonic than you can ever imagine. You're not closer to God, you're farther from God. Spirituality is not Christianity. Even variant forms of Christianity that become haughty and arrogant and prideful and look at other people with just attitude and angst and anger, that's twisted variant forms of true, the true heart of God. All of those things are prideful, and they're all influenced, I believe, by demonic powers. So what God wants to do is he wants to take back what the devil has established. Satan is, what I'm trying to say, a strong man. Yet Jesus is stronger. Now for some of you, this may freak you out. Let me say this. Let it freak you out. But don't be afraid. Because Jesus gives us power over this. This is the beauty of this. And this is what I want to finish up on. Because really what Mark's trying to state is that even though Jesus has arrived, he is stronger. He overcomes. He's overpowered the devil. But here's the beauty of it. Jesus then also equips his followers to have power and authority over the devil as well so that we won't be influenced by the devil, so that we won't be conquered and destroyed by the devil. He gives his followers, his children, delegated authority. This is not your authority. This isn't something that you earn. This isn't something that you deserve because you read your Bible that morning, because you read, you know, you pray a lot, or because you go to a good church. That is not why you have been given delegated authority. You've been given delegated authority because Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and is willed to give you delegated authority because he loves you. It's by grace. That's how he does this. So let me finish with this. We see at least several ways in which Jesus is stronger in which he's defeated the works of the devil. First of which, we see Jesus defeated the devil when he was tempted. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness, he was tempted by the devil. Luke chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, Jesus overcame the devil. How? By speaking God's word. The second thing, we see Jesus defeated the devil by commanding demons to depart from those uh, who, were, who, they, who they were tormenting. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he would walk up to people that were wounded or hurt or uh, possessed, or I should say, perhaps a better word, oppressed by demonic activity. And he spoke to the demons, commanding the demons to leave, and they left. Thirdly, we see that Jesus defeated the devil when he was dying on the cross and then ultimately rising again from the grave. This is what Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says this. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. You need to know this, that the devil is a defeated foe. Yes, he still exercises authority to some degree in this world, but it's an authority that is ultimately under the authority of Jesus. I was reading, and I, and I love kind of World War II type stuff, but do you know that at the end of World War II, even though, I mean, most, 
most people, most historians, even most soldiers would say, I was talking to this old guy I kind of hang out with sometimes. He's at Starbucks, and he was actually there on D-Day in Normandy. He's like on one of those, like, I think U-boats, whatever you call those things. Guy's awesome. Just an awesome guy. I love, he's always there with his wife. Guy's just a great dude. Anyways, we've talked about this one time, and I said, so let me ask you, was D-Day actually the end of the war? He's like, D-Day was the decisive battle. It, once D-Day happened, war was over. Like, so was everything all chipper then? You guys are all happy? Like, it's like, no, no, man. There, there are still places all around the world where the battle was still being fought and people were still being killed and, you know, influence was still happening. And you got to know, even at D-Day, Hitler was still around. Like, he was still in, in charge. But we had, we had struck the decisive blow that guaranteed the fact that the war was over. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus on the cross brought about the ultimate end of the devil's rule and reign. You got to understand this. We don't engage in spiritual warfare to secure defeat. We engage in spiritual warfare because there is defeat. You got to know this. It's not us going out trying to defeat the devil. The devil has already been defeated. We're just simply taking back what he has taken. We're reclaiming what rightfully belongs to Jesus. So we see that Jesus ultimately conquers there on the cross in the present. So all of those were sort of past examples. In the present, we see that Jesus defeats the devil by entrusting his church with power and authority to do the same. This is an amazing thing that we see that Jesus does. There's at least two ways in which Jesus does this. One, by commanding devils in his name. Okay, this is really important. In some ways, this may even be controversial. But I want to at least give you guys scriptural evidence for why I say what I'm going to say. So that's the best that I can do. If it's wrong, I'm happy to learn. I'm happy to be corrected. I'm happy to understand and try to retrain my thinking. But I'm going to give you verses that I think demonstrate this. Jesus calls his followers, his apostles, and he gives them authority to cast out demons. All right, so here's the question. How did Jesus cast out demons? Well, he spoke to them. He spoke to the demonic presences. And he says, leave or depart. And they departed. I'll give you examples of this. Mark chapter 1, verse 27 says this. And they were amazed, saying, what is this? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So Jesus is actually speaking to unclean spirits, and they obey Jesus. Secondly, we see in Luke chapter 4, it says, but Jesus rebuked him, speaking to the demon. It says, be silent, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him on, on the ground, uh, he says, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And then they said, and they all spoke amongst themselves, and they were amazed with one another and asked, what is this word with authority and power that he commands unclean spirits and they come out? So Jesus, the way he dealt with his demonic forces was he actually spoke to the forces, the demonic beings, telling them to come out, telling them to relinquish, telling them to leave, telling them to push back. He speaks to them. Kind of an amazing thing because later on, Jesus would then send out his disciples he sends them out to do what? To heal and to cast out demons. So here's my question. How, what method did they use, did they employ to cast out demons? My best assumption, it's really only an assumption because the Bible is not explicit in describing this in terms of this moment when they went out. But the reason why I think that this is probably the case is because really the whole point of a disciple is to do, a disciple is to do exactly what the discipler or the leader or the rabbi does. So in other words, you want to pray the way the discipler prays. You want to teach the way the rabbi, their discipler, teaches. You want to understand the scripture the way the rabbi, their discipler, teaches and understands the scripture. So 
it would be likely to follow reason that if the disciple or the leader or the rabbi casts out demons by speaking to them in his authority, then it would seem to follow that the followers of Jesus would also speak to the demons casting them out with the same authority, not on their own authority. They weren't walking up to him being like, what's up, demon? Leave, because I'm here. Like, that actually happens in the book of Acts. It's called the seven sons of Sceva. It's one of my favorite stories. A handful of these guys go up to a demon, demand the demon to leave. They're like, in the name of Paul's God, we command you to leave. And what happens is these demons spank these guys rear end, takes them stripped naked, and sends them out the room. Like, they come back. They're like, we're freaking out. We thought we can just cast out demons based upon the God that Paul serves. The point of the matter is this, is that we don't have authority. Paul the apostle doesn't have authority. Jesus does. Here's one more. Acts chapter 16, verse 18, when the preeminent of all the apostles, Apostle Paul. How does Paul do this? Here's what Paul says. Paul turned and spoke to the Spirit. I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So I'm simply saying, it's based upon my observation of the Scripture. When these people dealt with demonic presences and powers, they actually spoke to the demons in the name of Jesus' power, commanding them to leave. Again, like I said, that's been abused. We've seen nut jobs do this on television. We're like, these guys are freaky. Why? Because they are freaky. The point of the matter is this, is that regardless of what types of weird caricatures or freakiness or crazy things, nut job, wing nut things have been done in the name of Jesus, based upon this type of stuff, all I'm simply saying is let the Scripture be your final guide. Not your opinions upon weird, not job, wing nut people, charismaniacs. Let the scripture be the final say. Jesus speaks to demons and they come out. Jesus' disciples probably speak to demons and they come out. Paul speaks to demons on behalf of Jesus' name and they must listen. So someone might say, well, why can't you just like think it? Because it seems to be that God gives us power through our words. I don't know how else to say this. Let me say this. Let me give you another illustration. Why not just show up on Sunday morning and me hand out a transcript of my sermon? We all just kind of have quiet time for the next hour and read it. Why? Because there's something powerful about preaching. There's something powerful that happens when someone opens their mouth and speaks that just, I don't know how to describe it. I don't know what the reason is. I don't know why. Perhaps it's rooted in creation itself. God speaks. Things happen. I don't know. But that seems to be the case. Jesus speaks, and they must obey. Jesus' disciples speak in his name, under his authority, and they obey. The second thing that Jesus seems to do is he not only has them defeats his devils by commanding the devils in his name, but also by confessing and repenting of sin. This is sort of the second part of this, is that the way that we overcome the devil, the way that we combat him, the way that we do spiritual warfare, if you would, is by confessing and repenting sin. The Bible talks a lot about this. It says that if the devil's spiritual and the weapons of our warfare are spiritual, then, then how do we think that we can battle him in some sort of materialistic form? Like, we can't. 
But that's confusing to a lot of people because the real question is like, well, then how do we do spiritual warfare? Is it by singing songs? Is it by praying? Yeah, it could be by all those things. But you want to know the most practical way of doing spiritual warfare? Stop sinning. Let me, give you, let me give you a verse for this, all right? Ephesians chapter 4 says this. I'll read it to you. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, and do not give an opportunity to the devil. Here's what he says. He throws his little verse in the middle of this whole passage. Don't give an opportunity to the devil. You know what that means? Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give the devil a platform. Don't give the devil a spot in your life. How do we give the devil spots in our lives? You want to know how? Unrepentant sin. Let me give an example. If you, by way of illustration, if you have bitterness in your heart, you refuse to forgive somebody, even though you know that God's saying, forgive this person. I forgive you. Forgive this person. And you say no. You're actually giving the devil influence over this area of your life. I talked to somebody not too long ago who was having night terrors, evil dreams in the middle of the night. It was going on for a long time. Like little, literally, he had images where he'd wake up in the middle of the night and there were demons on the edge of his bed, freaking him out, scaring him out to death. I met and it just I, I walked through them. It turns out that he was struggling with some sort of sexual sins, but even beyond that, he had deep bitterness in his heart towards some, certain people. And I asked him, I says, have you ever confessed those things to God? Have you ever dealt with those things? And we walked through the process. So for him, it wasn't casting a demon out. It was confessing sin. It was confessing that he was embittered against somebody. And I ran into him a few months after that. I'm like, hey, how are things been going? And he's like, I haven't had any night terrors. I haven't had any bad dreams. Fear hasn't been laying hold of my heart. I says, when did that happen? He says, he's all right after we met. Like, I started really looking in my heart and asking myself those questions about unrepentant sin and confessing sin and relinqu- relinquishing people uh, and stop harboring bitterness in my heart towards these people. And I started confessing these sins to God and asking God to take over my heart. And I found victory in these areas of my life. And so what I'm really trying to say is this, is that one of the greatest ways, one of the most profound ways that you can do spiritual battle is that, for example, he's, is why Paul is going to go on to say, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing good and honest work. So, for example, want to do spiritual warfare? If you're stealing, stop stealing. Start being generous. Give money away. Want to do spiritual warfare? Stop being stingy. Become generous. You want to do spiritual warfare? Stop holding grudges against everybody. Forgive people. You want to do spiritual warfare? Stop dabbling around with pornography and start loving your spouse. Want to do spiritual warfare? Stop giving way to fear and allow love to come into your heart. And that may be by confessing sin, and in some ways that may even be by casting out demons in the name of Jesus on his power, on behalf of his authority. This is how it would seem as if Jesus continues to take advanced work, move in our lives, through our lives, to take his kingdom, to move it into our lives, to push back the darkness, to push forth the light of his righteousness in our life, to set us free. The reason why we can do all this, because ultimately the storyline of the Bible is this, is that God, who is light, came into this world, took upon himself flesh and blood, ultimately to the point of death on the cross. And on the cross, all the forces of wickedness and evil and darkness came against Jesus 
to try to destroy him. But the story of the Bible is that Jesus overcame that. Why? Because he's God. And therefore, he continues to do that work to set people free. I want to finish right now. I want to stop. And what I want to do right now is I don't, want to, I don't want to go on any further without talking about this type of stuff other than to simply say, look, at the end of the day, Jesus is here now. We can talk about this. We can revel in this. We can talk about how wonderful this is. But the reality is for some of you, you're stuck. You're bound. You're in oppression right now. You're perhaps held by fears. You're perhaps held by sin. You're perhaps held by certain forms of things in your life that are just destroying you. Maybe some of you found yourself in forms of variant forms of spirituality and you become arrogant and prideful, but none of which have led to the exclamation and the beautification of Jesus. All of those things perhaps are things you need to confess and be set free from. The fact of the matter is that we have a God who is great, who is victorious, who loves to set people free that are bound by any form of oppression. For some of you, you might be sick. We pray for sick people because we actually believe Jesus still heals people. For some of you, you might be bound by that. Now, not every sickness is directly linked to some form of demonic oppression. Some may be, but we don't know what is and what we don't know what, what's not. But the point of the matter is, is we can pray for all of them. So all I want to do right now is I want to finish, and I want to say this. If you're here and there's any form of oppression over your life, right now, and you find yourself in a place where you want to be set free, you want to be delivered, you want Jesus to rescue you, to help you, to heal you, whoever you are, wherever you are, just want to ask you right now, would you please stand? All I want to do is pray for you. For some of you, this is tough, because you, maybe for some of you, you've been carrying around this oppression for so long. You've been so bound by fear, you've been so bound by just the desire to be liked by other people, affirmation by other people, and you've been bound. God wants to set you free. Maybe for some of you, it's spirituality. You've been bound by spirituality. Jesus wants to set you free. It's religion. Jesus wants to set you free. Maybe you're sick. Some form of sickness, illness that's been binding you, holding you down, crushing you. Maybe Jesus wants to set you free right now. Maybe there's bitterness in your heart. You're bound. It's the influence of the devil over your life. The way that you break his influence is you stop giving him a foothold. You confess sin. And you relinquish it back to Jesus. You let the cross, you let the gospel do what the gospel is intended to do to set you free. Anybody else? Just stand where you're at. You guys know who you are. We're family here. Like this is, this is, this is just us as a family. No one's here to judge you. We're family. We might not know a lot of you. We might not know a lot of each other, but the bottom line is we're family. We're in Christ. Some of you aren't Christians even. We're happy you guys are here. I talk to people every week that aren't Christians. that come here all the time. Non-Christians. Just kind of checking things out. I'm glad you're here. I hope you come to meet Jesus, maybe even right now. Anybody else, you just look at your life and feel some sense, some level of influence of the devil over your life. All I want to do is pray for you. I know this is tough, man. Standing up is tough. You're like, people are looking at me. But you know, at the end of the day, don't you want to be set free? And there's nothing magical or spiritual about standing up or having people lay hands on you and pray for you. But it is scriptural. We see it in the Bible. People do it for one another. Jesus did it for people. His disciples did it for people we want to do it for each of you. Anybody else, just stand up right where you're at. 
rest of you guys, if, if, you're, if you see someone, if you're sitting by someone who's standing up, can you just lay hands on them? Right now, just find someone who's standing and just lay hands on them. We lay hands on you uh, because it's, it's a way of just, in a tangible way, saying we love you. You're not in this alone. You're part of the community. Just like Jesus is a part of the community of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. He welcomes us into that community. I'm going to pray and we'll worship. We'll sing. We'll partake of communion. We'll remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. We'll respond. Jesus, I pray right now for those here that just have felt oppressed and broken and ruined and crushed by the devil, by his influences. God, I pray that you set people free. Devil, demonic presence, demonic spirits, we command you, not in our name. Our name is nothing. But in the name of Jesus, the mighty, the powerful king, that you must let go. You must relinquish these people that have been blood-bought. You have no right. You have no claim over them, over their hearts, over their homes, over their thoughts, over their minds, over their bodies, over their sons, over their daughters, over their family members. You have no right. So in the name of Jesus, from whom all authority has been delegated to some degree in part to us, we have no credit. We can't take no credit in any way. God, this is all you pray that you would set people free. For anybody here right now, God, that is sick, that has some sort of sickness or some sort of illness, we don't know what it is, but you do. We even ask you, God, that if it would be by your good pleasure right now that you would heal, bring healing in this moment, in this place. Set people free from all that binds, from all that oppresses. Give people strength to walk away from sin, to confess sin before you, to call sin what it is, to leave it behind, to draw near to you. Let's not worship you, God, in spirit and truth.